0: Hey everyone, I am back and I have a very special guest, um, uh, uh, my friend Maddie and Maddie is drinking coffee and I have, I don't know if anyone knows, I have a new little fur baby um, who is actually my support animal. Um, So, you know, we're going to just try this. Uh, I have a buddy in his little swaddle on my chest and hopefully it'll be a a smooth sailing. So um, Maddie, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself and, you know, start to just tell your story. And if I have any questions or if I think there's anything that someone would need clarification on or to help bridge you know, I will certainly ask um, questions.
1: Sure, absolutely. And I'll start with the short answer first. Um, I'm uh, Maddie. I'm a compulsive eater, anorexic and bulimic. Um, I also identify as addict um, and uh, I work a couple of other programs um, that I uh, also qualify for um i also identify as a um transgender person a trans woman specifically and um, and uh yeah i think the what we kind of want to talk about um and i also identify as queer um i think um what nicole and i um have been talking about is uh, just, just kind of how that experience with my identity as a queer person overlaps with my experience as a person in recovery. Is that what you're thinking too, Nicole? Yeah,
0: definitely. (laughs) So before we started recording, um, you know, Maddie and I are very much about being of service, particularly to the newcomer, And so, you know, when we're having this conversation, we're really thinking about, you know, a new trans queer person coming into the rooms and helping them hopefully feel less alone uh, or uh, less terminally unique. So, you know, and that's one of the things that I love about Maddie is Maddie is equally invested to being of service as I am. So, yeah. So whatever however you want to start, Matt.
1: Uh, you know, I think just to carry that thought a little bit, um, and thanks for your compliment. It's definitely important to, uh, be in the center of the herd in recovery. And I, uh, learned that, um, is an important part of my journey. Um, you know, with sort of the queer trans experience, um, Uh, That was a big concern. Um, I knew for about, um, yeah, 10 years. Um, The first time I entered the rooms of recovery, 12-step rooms, um, was uh, early 2019, right at the first of the year. Um, The first time I considered entering the rooms um, was like mid 2008 um, so the biggest thing that kept me out of the rooms during that time um, was this fear that I would not be accepted because of my uh, most of that time my uh, queer identity but you know later as a went through gender identity transition, also queer, trans person. Um, and I'm grateful that I started recovery in Portland because um, it, uh, it often feels more um, accepting of queer people, um, people who identify as queer or trans. But um, my experience is that that fear was not really warranted. Um, I've always been welcomed um, in uh, the rooms of 12-step recovery. Um, Even if I'm joining a Zoom meeting in a place that um, I may not visit because I might not feel safe there. (laughs) So... um, yeah, I don't know if that kind of helped sort of set the context. If there's anybody listening who has that fear of if they'll be accepted, I've been there. I really had that fear.
0: So what was it like when you did come in?
1: Um, really kind of the opposite. Um You know, there's this thing that we say in the rooms of recovery, we'll love you until we love yourself. And we'll accept you with open arms. These are things that we say. Um, You know, and for me, when I entered the rooms, I had been um, out as myself in terms of gender identity um, for about uh, two years. Um, It was almost two years to the date um of uh presenting that as myself and taking hormones and everything um and uh it was probably about uh, i don't know um close to 20 years um after i uh came out of some version of queer i went through um very uh many different labels <laughs> but i came out for the first time in high school and uh the rooms of 12 step recovery were the only time in my entire life of that experience of being out of the closet um that i felt like people really saw the real me and people accepted me um I'm sorry that is Alexa in the background. <laughs> um but uh but yes uh you know it was the first time that um people saw the real me and it's because I think um as much as you know my identity um again as a queer trans person is important to me and i'm grateful that i have had that journey um it doesn't necessarily define me in the way that um the things i'm in recovery for defined me at the core of my being if that makes
0: sense what was your so you've been in since 2019 So why don't you just sort of, you know, what it was like, what happened, what it's like now. And particularly if there's anything, so, you know, if there's anything that it's like, because this happens a lot when I'm in like an AA meeting, you know, where it's very hardcore AA and, you know, very like from the masculine. There are many, many things that I'm like, that doesn't work for women or yeah, mm-hmm. I have to rework that so mm-hmm. that it takes in that I am. So this is where it's like, and this again, Maddie and I were talking before the podcast, like there is this sort of one size fits all aspect of twelfth step, mm-hmm. which is that the 12 steps will work for you. You are not terminally unique. However, there are often aspects of it that with a sponsor, hopefully, or someone who shares your experience, you can learn how to like being, you know, atheist, like how do you do this, Mm -hmm. you know, so that it then it becomes more tailored, you know, it's if we thought about it, it's literally if we went out and bought a one size fits all suit, and then we took it to a tailor, Mm -hmm. you know, so you know, what was your journey like hearing about the steps and especially with the focus on the body? Yeah.
1: Um, You know, I think uh, one of the biggest things that I heard early on that was really helpful um, is take what you need and leave the rest. Um, You know, and a lot of these, these mottos, these slogans, um, Kind of helped for me. um, I was able to use them like mantras to uh, help myself feel safe in the rooms. Um, And so, you know, there have been times, a lot of times, um, especially if I'm in mixed meetings um, that aren't specifically um, queer identified in some kind of way. I'll hear a lot of things that don't feel like they apply to me um but um you know usually in every person's share there's at least a nugget of truth that i can relate to so i take that um the um As far as like body image part of it, that um, I think for a lot of us in recovery, a lot of us in O.A. specifically, um, that's like one of the most uncomfortable things we're sensitive about. Um, And for me, it was really helpful. Um, This doesn't have to be everybody's experience, but... um, uh, well, I think it is essential that we find somebody that we feel safe with. So we say we find somebody who has what we want um, as far as a sponsor um, or like a recovery partner. But um, for me, it's also important to add and we feel safe with that person and. Um, And so I'm very grateful, and again, part of this might be sort of unique to Portland, but um, so at various times, for various reasons, I've had four different sponsors across programs, um, and all four of them have very close experiences with trans people um, or identified as trans themselves. Um, And so I wasn't the first trans person that they met and worked with. Um, With that being said, I've had plenty of um, close friends and um, in my support network, who I believe I am the first trans person who they've had close experience with, Um, but I still have found um, much support um, from them. You know, I think the important thing is just gravitating in the direction of um, people who we do feel safe with. Um, and as much as I would like that to be my experience with everybody in recovery, um, you know, I think um, we're not all well. Um yeah. And yes. we will encounter some people that we don't feel safe, safe with. But to me, that's another version of I take what I need and let leave the rest. Yeah. Right? Like, you know, not everybody is meant for me. Yeah. They'll deserve to be in recovery. Yeah. Um, but uh, I may not ever feel safe with them.
0: Absolutely. Was OA your first 12 step program?
1: It wasn't. Um I first entered the rooms um through AA, Alcoholics okay. Anonymous. Um and you know, I think because the the most obvious wreckage I created in my life um seemed to be an extension of that. But what's interesting, the last most of the last year, um Yeah, so it came out as trans in 2017. Um, The year before that was when I really stopped using substances. Um, And, uh, you know, there were like a couple of occasions in there. But those final few years before I entered recovery, um, it was really like, you know, my... Uh, we talk about like insanity obsession of the mind it was much more around food um, than than anything else and I felt weird coming into the rooms then because it was like well you know uh, I'm dry from substances (laughs) I'm not even sure why I'm here right now um, but then, about eight nine months into my recovery in that program,
0: what kept I got you tw- coming back for? So for eight months, yeah. you weren't sure you belonged.
1: <laughs> so, uh, that's a really be- that's a really good point. I mean, I think um,
0: aside from your higher power, I mean, what was it that?
1: Yeah, it, it was. Like, it was a thought that would come up in my head. You know, why am I here? Do I qualify? Um, it's just this sort of, like, doubt. Um, but um, I knew and I felt home.
0: Ah, uh, yeah.
1: Every meeting I went to, I felt the more the most accepted and the most myself I had ever felt in my entire life. Wow. Yeah. Um and then when I started doing the recovery, you know, like during that time I did do the steps, um, the 12 steps of recovery. And um I I've since had to do multiple rounds. I'm on a couple of rounds right now. Yeah. Um
0: the story and, of our lives.
1: Right. Um, uh, rinse and repeat.
0: Yeah, guess, but, yeah. exactly. Rinse and <laughs> repeat. So <laughs> at eight months, you're just still only going to AA.
1: Only going to AA. Um, I had um mostly completed this. Uh, I think I yeah I was on my twelfth step. Um, but I. Uh, What happened was I got 12-stepped, and we say that when we mean, like, somebody, um, uh, you know, um, helps us realize that we qualify for recovery, right? Um,
0: Yeah. In a different in a, program. <laughs> in
1: a different program, yeah. And so I got 12-step. If 12 you're in
0: 12-step, getting 12-steps means, hey, you qualify for this one over. If you're not it, in 12-step, it's like, hey, there's a whole 12-step program for you.
1: <laughs> exactly. Um. So I was at an AA meeting. It was after the AA meeting. I got 12-stepped into OA.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. Okay.
1: Um. And all I had to hear... And so you know restricting is a big part of my story. Um, and it was on the night that um uh you know it was sort of late and I had been restricting all day um and so I probably did look like a mess but nobody would have said anything <laughs> except uh, this friend who um, uh, at one point did um, sponsor me for a little while after this, but um you know, she um was in both AA. We had just gone to a meeting together and she was in OA.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and uh, a close friend of mine she um we uh, share a sponsor. Um, and uh all she really said was, I see you.
0: Oh wow!
1: <laughs> she she said more than that, but that was the part where I was like, "Oh shit!" Right?
0: <laughs> um,
1: sorry, I don't know if I can curse yeah. on me. <laughs> yeah, you can fucking
0: swear. I, I swear <laughs> all the time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, but uh, but yeah, it just like really shook me to my core. Um, in honestly, a bigger way than the moment that it led me into AA. Yeah. Um, Because I guess I I knew that, right? But I wasn't willing to admit that I had any problems around food. Right.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Also, uh, having gone to open AA meetings, I know how many people, uh, well, I don't know. I know there are a lot of people with eating disorders, who are hiding in AA. And you know what, I, I do not judge them. Mm -hmm. Like, I've talked to some, you know, I think in the early recovery, I would have judged them. Like, oh, you're just cross addicting. And now that I'm older, and I recognize how much emotional work you have to do in recovery and how traumatizing it can be Mm -hmm. to wake up for some of us that if being sober Mm -hmm. is the end all for you in terms of alcohol and drugs, congratulations. Like that is wonderful, you know? And if you still need the food to be able to show up to life every day, you know, that's great it doesn't work for everyone because some people bottom out in the food mm-hmm. and then it fucks with their sobriety. Right. You know, so.
1: Yeah. You know, and I think the phrase that comes to mind and this is another sort of um, thing that we often say and might sound cliche, but we talk about the game of whack-a-mole, right. That like, I do recovery in another area um, and I find other things. Um, And that's why, you know, um, I've since added three and soon to add a fourth program on top of those. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And so we keep, as we do more work, we're um, uncovering more layers. Yeah. Of uh, where we need recovery, and I think um,
0: yeah.
1: a big part of my recovery that helped me get there is um, my uh, my main current sponsor always talks about the need to feel safe, um, and the um, sometimes to do that we need to give ourselves ways to self soothe. Absolutely. And some of those ways that I self sue serve me better than others absolutely.
0: Um, You're speaking to what I call harm reduction. I am a hundred percent about harm yeah. reduction right because if someone you know was in a full body cast and they were healing, you know that you know in the beginning they may they may need, this kind of crutch later on they may need it takes time you know and it takes time to heal before you and and if you stay in the program and if you keep working you will give up crutches and then if you need you know to binge what whatever it is you -hmm. know if you need something it's less harmful So you're giving up something and then if you need to reach for something that's less harmful, then go ahead. You know what I mean? And we can get into that as another topic because that's a whole topic in itself. But I want to stay focused on, so the whack-a-mole, it's eight months, you go into way.
1: And, you know, I had this fear all over again. Um, And I... uh, didn't get into that too much, but like uh this fear that I was gonna be accepted as a queer trans person. Right. Can so, I ask a
0: question? Sure. Any chance and you can speak to this, that it's because OA is like 90% women.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that was a big part of it. So when I came to AA meetings at the first time. I was like, okay, um, you know, at various times in my life, um, it just to kind of like characterize how comfortable I felt, right? Yeah. Like at that time in particular, if I was given the option between a gender neutral restroom um, and, um, a, you know, one for women and one for men, I would always opt for the gender neutral. Right restroom but not given the option i would um opt for the women's restroom right and so you you know and that was a big part of like my transition and everything to getting there and that's how it was when i came into the rooms but i still felt i had this idea in my head that i didn't qualify for women's meetings Mm -hmm. and i would show up at a women's meeting and they'd be like what why why how are you here? Uh, <laughs> something, you know. And I
0: and did it that. Act, I mean, wait. Did that happen, or is that no. your fear? Oh, okay.
1: Never, never happened in the slightest. Nobody right. ever judged me. Um, they rarely, it rarely ever came up that I was trans. Right. Um, that's why I say it was like the most accepting experience I ever had. Um, in my early recovery in those eight months, I went to mostly women's meetings. Right. Um, and most of them weren't identified as queer friendly. Um, it just kind of so happened and I, I, eventually it just became normal. Right. And I was like, uh, yeah, I belong here and I didn't question it and nobody questioned it. Yeah. Um,
0: I don't know if you remember this, but one of the first times when I started to see you and for, and it was online, mm-hmm. you know, um, I actually messaged you and I, I had to message you for a reason. Mm-hmm. And I said, Oh, what are your pronouns? You know, what oh, you yeah. mean? Mm-hmm. and you said something to the effect of because I've never forgotten this, that they were they, them, and you were now really trying to embrace the she, her. Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I was, like, 100%, you know? Yeah.
1: It, it it was because of the rooms, like, honestly, where I was moving in that direction. Because, like, so I, a tiny bit of backstory, I started my gender identity transition in Nebraska, Um, And just my experience, this isn't everybody's experience, but my experience in that part of the country is that uh, there didn't feel like enough frame of reference with um, non-binary to identify in that way. I was there for about six months. I moved back to Portland. I had lived here previously. Um, and then immediately seeing other people identify with they them, I was like, "Oh well, I'm not really feminine enough to be using she her." Right. Um, and then I moved in this direction of they them, and that's a big part of my experience and my like coming to terms with my identity. I'm glad I had that experience. I definitely have gender fluidity. Yeah. Um, but it was the rooms. Uh, of 12-step recovery that I was able to um, feel at home um, and not question whether I belonged if I was in a um, quote-unquote safe space for women only. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I think that um, if I did identify as they-them And not she, her, or they, them. I might not feel that way. Um, But, uh, you know, I think the important thing for anybody listening, regardless of um, how you may identify, is just that it is a welcoming place um, uh, based on the capacity that we have available. And it's really, in my experience, the most welcoming. Place in the rooms so of recovery.
0: I think one of the reasons for that, and I just had this thought where, you know, first of all, 12 step is the last house on the block, right? It's also the place where you can say something like, you know, well, I got drunk. I slept with my best friend's boyfriend, you know, then I went in the kitchen and I ate everything. And then I threw up in the bathroom and then I stole their money and I left and went to the store. You know what I mean? Like, and what I mean is, is that not to equate queer or trans with, you know, irreparable behavior, but the idea That it sets this tone of like, Mm -hmm. whatever you think we are going, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. you know, that we are going to reject you for, we're not. We're not. And if anyone does reject you, that's about them. And our feeling is they need to work their program,
1: you know, and
0: people will come up to you and protect you and say, Don't even listen to that person. Yeah, They need to work a four-step. This is not about you.
1: Yeah. And, you know, the other piece of that that uh, is helpful for me as a trans person, um, something that I think anybody in the rooms of recovery can relate with, even if they've never even heard of trans people or have any uh, capacity to relate, they can relate to the feeling of feeling uncomfortable in our own skin. Exactly. Um, And, you know, that's not all trans identity is for me, but it's a huge part of it. Yeah. It's that I always felt uncomfortable in my own skin. And some of the ways that manifested was gender dysphoria. And a big portion of it was because, you know, um, I was a person who, need recovery. <laughs>
0: so let's dilate on that a little bit. So <clears throat> now your your re, your recovery is moving into OA. Yeah. Where you know the focus is actually your body as right. opposed to CA, CMA, AA, it's really about like sobriety. It's not about how you feel. Mm-hmm in a body it yeah. it could be about how you feel right but it's not about body image dysmorphia you right. know what i mean like anything like that so what was that like coming and, into oa
1: that was the thing is uh, you know all over again i had all these feelings that i had worked through and let go of when i entered AA of will I be accepted? Will I be allowed in women's scenes? Um, You know, will I, um, will people think I'm a safe person? Um, And it was because of that sort of thing of like, oh, well, now we're actually getting into body image and all these people in this room, they can relate to me until I start talking about my experience through gender identity transition, which um, feels very personal. Um, But, you know, my experience was, that was another um, fear not grounded in reality because it was the same thing, right? Like, you know, somebody who I met in the rooms didn't have to be trans or know any trans people To know what it was like to um, just have all these um, just uh, unkind feelings towards their own bodies,
0: or complicated feelings towards their own body.
1: Yes, yeah, complicated. (laughs) That's good. Unkind?
0: No. Well, one unkind, absolutely you know what I mean? To have this feeling of wanting to reject your body. Yet at the same time, when I said complicated, I meant like, sometimes it's not just one feeling. You know what I mean? It could be a lot of complicated feelings. For example, growing up, um, on the one hand, I hated my body. And not in terms of like, just that it didn't look like uh, supermodels, Mm -hmm. but that I thought I would, I was constantly told growing up that everything that I did well was like a guy. And every Mm -hmm. so I was like, you know, a tomboy and everything like that. Oh, that's more like a guy. And what people didn't know they were saying to me was you're failing as a woman. Yeah. So I remember thinking it was a cruel joke and that I sh- my life would be so much easier if I was just in a male body. Now, my mm-hmm. experience of that is that I actually didn't want to be in a male body. Mm-hmm. I just thought that like, I'd be more successful in life. Right. You know, and yet at the same time, I was a hardcore feminist fighting for my right. You know what I mean? So that's mm-hmm. what I mean around like, so on the one hand, sort of, wanting to reject my body because a it doesn't look like the ideal and b apparently i'm not doing it right right but then c no i'm a woman i want you know what i mean like i have a right to be here so Uh, you know
1: yeah absolutely and that um thank you for bringing that up nicole um and i think that that's a good frame of reference that everything that Nicole just said in my experience most people in the one in in the rooms particularly people who have or currently identify um in feminine ways um, or have in the past um you know we can really relate with a lot of complicated feelings around gender Yeah, and all the stuff that like I thought well I can't I can't talk about this I can't talk about gendered and what it feels like to be gendered incorrectly um you know and all these things or what it feels like to look at my body and feel like um it doesn't belong to me um but, you know, the more that we have vulnerable conversations in recovery, um uh, I realized that that was another way that I was convincing myself I was terminally unique. Right. Where really, these people in the room saw the real me. Yeah. Um More than a lot of um, honestly queer and trans people who are not in recovery. Right. right now. Like, you know, I feel safe with them in other ways. Right. Um, but I can't necessarily talk to them right. about my feelings about body image.
0: So I want to dilate here for a second, because we're really on a nice hot topic, which is, again, we talked about that one size fits all, right? Yeah. So you, me, other people are, are, we're metaphorically in a room. And, and someone explains what disassociation is and disassociation related to your body mm-hmm. and this idea of not wanting to be in it yeah. and living from the neck up and rejecting your body. And that recovery is this process of coming home to your body and then doing the work of, well, what is kicking you out? Yeah. Why are you rejecting your body? And unpacking that. And in that sense, that is, for me, mm-hmm. sort of, and I'm this is a fresh thought, I haven't really thought through this, is like the one size fits all. Like you, mm-hmm. w- you me, other people, whatever gender, whatever mm-hmm. physical, we could be sitting in a class hearing that. Yeah and if we're in the rooms of oa mm-hmm. no one is going like uh i don't think i belong here not if yeah. you're not if you've already established that you belong in oa it's yeah. like no this is what we do you yeah. know is that we use food mm-hmm. to escape from whatever is the present moment
1: yeah it, it's funny because, um, funny isn't the right word, but um, as you're, <laughs> interesting, as you're, as you're talking, I was thinking about um, one of the prejudices that I had when I came to OA is like, oh, well, I can never go to a mixed meeting um, where people who identify masculine ways, specifically cisgender um, men right. um, are because, like, how are they possibly going to relate to my experience? Um, but, you know, I will say that um, I won't necessarily feel safe to tell, like, my um, uh, biggest secrets, um to to everyone who identifies in those ways but um but i do know without question that we all relate to our bodies in very similar ways right um and you know and i feel comfortable in a room regardless of the gender expression of the people in those rooms as long as it is uh, a 12 step recovery room yeah I feel comfortable and safe talking about my struggles with body image. And, you know, I don't um, go into specifics about gender identity transition, but like, you know, those the specifics I leave out are ones that are not relevant to my recovery. Right. Um but as far as my body image and how it relates to my experience that qualifies me for a seat in OA, yeah. um, I know that there really isn't anything that I'm not allowed to say.
0: Right. So I keep bringing you back to when you entered OA and then we keep having these, fan, you know, fascinating, <laughs> you know, sidetracks. So let's go back to you coming into the room. So you had already worked the steps once. Yeah. So did you, how did, in coming into OA, what was it like coming in and working that program? And did you use the same sponsor?
1: Uh, Kind of. Yeah. So um, my... The sponsor who I finished that round of steps with, um, who wasn't my first sponsor, but the one that I finished that round of steps with in AA, um, was uh, still my sponsor when I was 12-stepped outside the AA meeting into OA by one of her other sponsees who happened to work in OA program. Um, and, uh, for about, um, it's still kind of technically, I've, you know, since been why well, consider that other person like a co-sponsor, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Um, yeah. and, you know, for probably about, um, another year, I was mostly working with that person, mm-hmm. um, uh, in recovery. Um, and that might've been the only person that i referred to as sponsor, but, you know, um, both of them have been really important in my recovery. Anyway, I'm grateful that they work both fellowships, um, and, uh, you know, some of my other fellowships, um, that's not always the experience. Um, and you know some of the people that who I sponsor have other sponsors who they don't talk about um, these kinds of things with, and right. that that works fine too.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: R- really, about who we need for our recovery, right? Um, yeah, some of us need more than one. <laughs> so, what
0: was it like working the steps in a way? in comparison to AA.
1: I am really grateful that um, my OA home group quickly became this meeting that um, uh, really no longer exists, um, and that uh, um, just kind of dissipated during the pandemic like some meetings have. But that meeting is a format, and I, I like this. I'd like to see other meetings do this, a format where we would sometimes turn to OA literature and sometimes, like, is sort of on a rotating basis, we would read the AA literature. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, and it, it, um, I think that's helpful for people who are in both programs of recovery, Mm-hmm. But it's also helpful, I've noticed, um, and again, this isn't really my experience, but I've noticed other people who maybe only qualify for OA
0: Yeah.
1: Um, appreciate the language in Aang. And I yeah. think one of the things, I love the literature of OA, but one of the things that's kind of missed sometimes is the urgency and the desperation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, the severity
0: yeah
1: of, of our condition. Yeah. Um, and so for me, it was helpful. I already had frame of reference with that. and so I was constantly kind of, um, yeah, comparing and I I did do the um, the 12 steps in OA through the OA workbook. Yeah, um, which was really helpful. But I was also able to compare it. Like um, sometimes it would help me understand the steps to compare it to how it was discussed in the AA literature. But yeah, that's my experience.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I um, uh, my I've had several sponsors been through the steps several times. People are sick of hearing this, but um, too bad. Uh, <laughs> you know the. <laughs> The sponsor who saved my life, quote unquote, is the one that I got in AA because of exactly what you're talking about, um, where it's like, I'm dying. Yeah. And this was sugar addiction. And this was back when people weren't really, you know, if anything, there was more of an attitude of like, you can eat anything you want if you do it right. Yeah. And so it's like, no, I'm gonna die. And so going to um an AA sponsor who was really hardcore. Yeah. And now I've kind of taken the, you know, AA boot camp and the OA sort of book club style, and I've sort of meld them together because. You know, people disagree and you're allowed to have your opinions and you can make your own podcast. But you know, I'm like, it is a very big difference to have a substance that you just say no to, right, versus having a relationship (laughs) to a substance. So in a way, I always think of the yin and the yang, you know what I mean? Like 12 AA is very good at structure very good Mm -hmm. and it gives you the framework Mm -hmm. but you know OA is very nuanced and it is so much about feeling and your body and somatic you know and finding that place if you think of a mom and a dad I know I'm genderizing this but it's like the sense of like Mm -hmm. There is, you know, that sort of disciplinarian, like, mm-hmm. and I am that way in a sense of like, mm-hmm. there's a structure to your recovery program and here are the things you need to do. And then also like being very, you know, heartfelt and connective yeah. around how you feel in your body. Right.
1: Right. And, you know, I would describe at least part of that as OA in my experience, Um, and this is historically, and all 12-step is moving this direction, but OA is more trauma-informed. Yes. It's more up-to-date, it's more um, open to discussing our feelings. Yes. Something I hear in the rooms of AA often, um, which can sometimes help me in my OA program, but um, sometimes is not helpful, is this phrase, feelings are not facts. Right. Um, And we only focus on the facts. I think it's sometimes helpful for me to realize, like, um, when I'm in catastrophic thinking, um, that the the feelings i'm bringing up in my head are not certain yeah um but,
0: also i've heard in aa um the like i don't care how you feel i care what you right. do that's and an that, actual aa you right. know
1: and that is something that doesn't work for my program and my experience and i'm fortunate that i have found sponsors who um it doesn't work for them either yeah um you know, and if but again, it's take what you need and leave the rest. Exactly. So like, you know, um what's my experience may not be the same. Um, but I do know that there are certain things that I really like about um both bodies of literature.
0: Oh, absolutely, um, me too.
1: And bringing that together really helps me um, understand.
0: There's also a book called The Women's Way Through the 12 Steps, which I always recommend. I think I make it a homework assignment because it takes the AA program. Yeah. And she really makes, I think it's Stephanie Covington or something, She really does do the job of, okay, how do you take this, um, you know, male-born, masculine-born program that is like very boot camp and apply it to your experience as a woman, you know what I mean? Or to the feminine or whatever you want, or your moon, you know, there are so many words now. (laughs) You know, yeah. your moon side. Um, and I, I absolutely, when we were talking, I was thinking about if you had like a vase, right? Mm-hmm. No water in it. Yeah. Or if you had a puddle with no yes. vase, you know? And so again, finding that fluid state because it's not a mm-hmm. fixed point, you yeah. know, uh, bringing in the structure, the vase, but the structure so that you can experience your feelings right and not have your feelings drive your addiction right
1: and you know i think uh as, as you mentioned the women's way through the 12th step um which um you know um it often don't mention in meetings because it's not like OA-approved literature, but for a lot of us, those other versions of the steps are really much easier to relate to. Absolutely. Um, and for me, um, the latest version that I'm doing the steps is called the gentle path through the 12 steps.
0: Yeah, I've heard that was a really good way to do it, too.
1: Yeah, and the gentle path for me is um it's like the woman's way, except it's um it's more sort of like gender neutral.
0: I was about to say girl... it's pretty non-gendered. I have a copy, Correct. I think. I've just never read <laughs> yeah. it. Or it's maybe non-gendered. Yeah, it's non-gendered.
1: It's non-gendered, it's written by um a specialist. Patrick Harnes, a specialist in um, sex addiction, addiction yeah. actually. Um, <clears throat> so it, it's very trauma-informed.
0: Yes, again, um, the trauma-informed.
1: Right. And for me, when I read AA literature in particular, sometimes OA literature, but mostly this is true of AA literature, I have to translate it. Yeah. In a way that I feel safe with a way that um, I can relate to a way that is more trauma informed and more inclusive in my from my perspective. Right.
0: Yeah. So where are you now? Um, So, you know, having done the steps in AA coming into OA, your fears not manifesting, you know, working the OA workbook. Where do you? How would you describe your your recovery so far? Yeah. I mean, it's a. There's no yeah. end to recovery. There's no end to this. Problem. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, where do you feel that you have experienced recovery mm-hmm. since coming into OA? It's
1: a really good point. Um. So as we're recording this, it's early December, twenty twenty two. Um, and, uh, soon in a little less than a month, I will, um, reach what I consider two and a half years of imperfect abstinence. Yay! Thank you. Um, but that's also, um, like a little over three years, um, um, almost three and a half years of NOA. OA. Wow, okay, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, and it took me some time where, you know, so I identify as compulsive eater, anorexic, and bulimic. Um, during those eight and nine months, um, it was, you know, it wasn't like I was necessarily feeling like I was relapsing all the time, but I had to recalibrate my abstinence because Because um, I was um, really in my anorexia,
0: Mm, honestly.
1: I was, so I was working two programs. Um, I, uh, this was pre-pandemic. So I was um, traveling a lot. I don't drive. So I was doing a lot of public transit. Um, And it was kind of like, and I was working full time. Um, and I was going to more than one 12-step meeting a day um, you know, it could it just because that's what I needed at the time um and I had I was not giving myself time for meals mm. but it was also just that, like I wasn't taking care of myself. So I remembered, One of my sponsors at the time was like, you know, can't you just, like, take a snack with you or whatever? But, like, I was doing this thing where I would go to meetings all day and then realize it had been many hours since I had eaten anything. And then I would uh, uh, get off the bus at uh, a gas station or a convenience store and get, uh, you know, unhealthy things right. <laughs> and to, to sustain me and that was just and but i was still going to oa meetings yeah um you know and for me that was part of what i needed in my recovery and a weird thing started to happen because of the recovery that i had in 12-step um plus i was pretty deep in anorexia. Um, I lost a lot of weight and I was also a few years into my gender identity transition right before I got abstinent this time around. Um, I was, and this is something that still like kind of causes me grief. Like I was the most happy with my body image I'd ever been. Mm. Um, And sometimes now it depends on like, where my program is honestly did I go to a meeting that day Uh, but uh, you know sometimes I look at myself in the mirror and I'm not as happy as I was when I looked at myself in the mirror and because of my anorexia and my body dysmorphia I would see somebody who looked great everybody else around me saw somebody who um
0: looks somehow was
1: yeah you know, was not healthy. <laughs> right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So where are you today?
1: Um today uh it's really kind of practicing radical self-acceptance, but it's one day at a time.
0: Yeah.
1: Um I remember, you know, another thing that we didn't get into is what people uh referred to as outside help and a therapist during that time in recovery who is kind of sharing about a lot of the stuff with really gave me sort of a frame of reference for radical self-acceptance that is really helpful and i've applied to my recovery yeah which is that you know so it's one day at a time on the days where I can't relate with my body, I don't like what I see when I see in the mirror. Yeah, I find a part of my body that I do love or I'm at least apathetic towards. Yeah, um, and uh, sometimes the reference that the therapist gave me is maybe it's your <clears throat> big toe. Yeah,
0: um, and yeah, for
1: me, I don't necessarily like my feet sometimes but like you know there's usually part of my body maybe it's my finger or maybe it's yeah. my eye you know something that I can be like well that looks good and, yeah. and then it kind of helps me um ground myself and turn to higher power and just let go of my need to control things and just accept yeah. myself as I am
0: you know it's interesting Maddie is is that my relationship to the mirror was a huge part of my body acceptance because Mm -hmm. I used to do this thing and I, you know, and maybe you can relate where I could see myself in a mirror without actually seeing me. Yeah. And if I was naked, I actually wouldn't look in a mirror. Yeah. So I, at some point when I realized, you know, and it took me you know, about, I don't know, almost seven years, um, to realize that I had body image dysmorphia and what it was, Mm -hmm. um, that, and, and, you know, to just the awareness of it, I'm not saying I did anything about it, but just what it was. And then, um, you know, at some point in my recovery, I had, I caught myself not looking at myself in the mirror and, you know, I was like sponsoring people. I'm like doing service. And I, I, I just kind of called myself out on it, but not in a mean way. You know, I'm just like, you know, I think also I was doing a lot of inner child work. And so it was like, How would you, it was an instance and, you know, explaining an instance Mm -hmm. takes longer than the Mm -hmm. instance itself. Mm -hmm. But because I was doing a lot of inner child work, I had in my mind that I was the parent and there was an inner child in me. And then also Mm -hmm. different aspects of me at different ages. And so basically when I caught myself actually doing it, you know not looking in the mirror i had the idea of how would you feel if your mother looked at you and then looked away and so because again the mirror is my relationship to myself yeah and i uh, and it was horrible i had to practice looking at myself in the mirror and it was excruciating yeah and so even if it was just for like two seconds, you know, I had to practice and then catching myself naked in the mirror. I had to do the same thing because I was so used to rejecting my body because it wasn't perfect, you know, so there was nothing there. I wanted to having to do exactly what you're talking about. First of all, not turning away from it. But then looking at it and just picking one thing that I could look at with, you know, love. Yeah. And now it's been a long, long time. And I have to say, I have a fuck ton of recovery behind that now. Yeah. But I mean, it took like 15 years, 10 to 15 years of sl- of all the work, you know, like you said, the outside help, the trauma work, the like inner child work that I feel that now I can um, completely look at myself naked in the mirror, you know, without any sort of self loathing Now I struggle with the aging, mm-hmm. you know, but yeah. that's about aging, <laughs> you know what I mean? That's, yeah. so it's kind of interesting how it's it's a little different, um, but again, and I, I wanna say that what helped me with that whole process was certainly recognizing that I had that as I had internalized my mother's view of my body, right. she had her own, you know, uh, it was passed on. So I didn't want to do that. Mm-hmm. But how the rooms normalized that.
1: Right. And I, I think that part of it is, um, and this is, uh, Maybe a topic for another podcast. I think you've done podcasts on this topic, but, um, you know, sometimes when we're re-parenting ourselves, it's really kind of for the first time. Um, and that was my case, like, you know, um, I, and I love that concept of like, we show up in the way a loving parent does. Um, but for me, like, you know, that wasn't necessarily my experience. But, um, you know, it's still it's that same kind of compassion that, like, honestly, I think we all deserve from ourselves and others around us.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been wonderful. I hope we um, do another one, you know, on whatever topic, (laughs) you know, you like. Is there anything you'd kind of bringing us back full circle? to who we're doing this for, which is some newcomer in the room and or actually anyone who's listening who just wants to sort of understand a little bit more about the trans queer trans experience. Is there anything that you kind of want to, you know, shout out to them as a sort of closing?
1: Yeah, you know, I think specifically something that I would like to share with, um, anyone who struggles with their gender identity or sexual orientation and has a fear that maybe that will impact their recovery. I just want to say that you are welcome, wanted and needed. And if you don't feel safe in a meeting, um, it's not about you. It's about the other people in that meeting and maybe find another meaning. But you deserve to be here. And I think that's something that um, hopefully will be inspiring to anyone listening, um, whether they have that experience or not, Um, that we all deserve to be here. We all deserve recovery. Um, And my experience is, especially if we go to enough meetings, We will find the um, inclusion um, and support and love that we do deserve, regardless of whatever we think disqualifies
0: us. That is too perfect. So let's just end there. Thank you again so much, Maddie. (laughs) I really appreciate you.
1: Thanks so much.